Well, it is hard to follow that, but <laughs> my name is Tony Anderson. I have the privilege of serving here as the executive pastor and the pastor of counseling. And Doug and Jackie are away for a week of vacation with a lot of their family, and so it's my joy to be here today. Uh, speaking of vacations, uh, <clears throat> do you ever, do you like road trips? Do you ever take road trips, right? Uh, yeah, road trips, you can start out from your house, just jump in the car and drive all over the place, or maybe you fly somewhere, rent a car and drive in areas of the country you've never been to before. Uh, road trips are great ways to establish memories, memories that you'll have for a long time. In fact, as I was preparing for this uh, message, I emailed my son and I talked to my wife and said, give me some of the best road trip memories that you have from uh, growing up and w when we were all still living together. And uh, without exception, I think almost all but one of those memories came from the same road trip. And here's a picture from that road trip. I'm going to ask you a hard question here. Where do you think we are? Yeah, that's an easy one. Winslow, Arizona. This picture, though, has been blown up and hangs on my office wall because it has some significance to me. Um, my father died when I was 19. He actually committed suicide. And so he never knew my son. But one of the things I got from my father was a love of music. And when I was young, he gave me my first album. And the album was by a group called The Eagles. And the first song on that album is a song called Take It Easy. And there is a verse in that song that goes, and Matt has told me I cannot sing it, but it says, standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona, such a fine sight to see, there's a girl in a flatbed Ford slowing down to take a look at me. And so in Winslow, Arizona, this mural is painted on a building at the corner that was sung about in that song. And so for me, it sort of bridged the gap between generations. It was sort of a significant moment for me. So uh, that was a memory I take from that trip. But this trip had many of those memories. Uh, we actually flew into Las Vegas late at night and rented a car from a reputable uh, car rental company. Um, but have you ever rented a car and as they go, they say, hey, before you leave the lot, please check the vehicle to make sure there are no damages. Have you ever had that? Have you ever heard him tell that? My advice to you, make sure you do it, okay? Uh, it was late. I'd never had problems with cars. We get out. And so the next morning, we stayed in town. Next morning, we get up. We go to the Hoover Dam, have that tour. And then we hit the interstate. And when we hit interstate speeds, I am not kidding. The inside of that car was louder than any wind tunnel you could ever imagine. In fact, it was actually quieter to roll all the windows down than to drive with them up. And we couldn't figure out what happened. And so we stopped the car and we soon recognized that the front doors on each side really didn't close all the way. And so as a result, we start duct taping the doors to our car. Well, there's a problem with that, getting in and out. And so what we did for the rest of the trip was anyone, I usually drove, anyone sitting in the front seat, we had to get in from the second row of seats of this Dodge Durango, climb over the center console. I really felt like I was getting in a Saturn rocket before leaving. So a lot of memories there. In fact, when we got to Winslow, it was in, in Winslow when we had a second story room in a motel, we looked down and on the top of that Durango was a huge crater-like dent. That car had been wrecked, 
and never fixed and rented to us. God in his grace, back, God in his grace, for whatever reason, I was late when we got into Las Vegas. One time I got the insurance. So I didn't have to pay when they tried to say, what did you do to our car? I said, it came that way. But anyway, we're back in the story of Mark today. And I say all this because Jesus and the disciples have a road trip. And there's a very memorable moment or moments on this road trip. So if you have your scriptures, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 11. We're continuing in our series on Elevate Jesus in Our City, and we're in Holy Week. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he will continue to be elevated among the people during this week. And so we're going to pick up in verse 11. The last three weeks, Doug has talked about the triumphal entry, and now we're moving to the events just after that. Starting in verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. You sort of get this sense that they'd come into Jerusalem, they'd had that encounter, and then Jesus and the twelve sort of go to the temple where there's going to be a lot of activity to sort of inspect it. I get the idea of sort of like a football team who's playing an away game on Sunday. On Saturday, they do a walkthrough where they go through the stadium and they get familiar. So here they're sort of walking uh, through the temple. Now, they go to Bethany, which is about two miles away, and it's believed that they probably stayed with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, their friends, so it had been a road trip. And so they, they went to Bethany that night. On the next day, the next morning, when they had left Bethany, he, Jesus, became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Now, the next passage goes into Jerusalem. We're going to read about uh, Jesus' cleansing of the, uh, of the temple. We're not going to break that down today. We're actually going to do that in two weeks. But the fact that this historical event happened is impactful when we start thinking about uh, the events of this tree. So they came to the Jerusalem and they entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers and seats of those who were selling doves. And he, Jesus, would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, so now it's the next day, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. So what is going on here uh, in this situation? Re we've got to remember, they came into the t uh, Jerusalem. Uh, it's either Sunday or Monday. Scholars differ on when, when the entry was. So it's either Monday morning on the way back or Tuesday morning. On the way in, Jesus is hungry. Again, evidence that although he's fully God, he's fully human. He goes to a fig tree that has leaves on it, and he finds no fruit, and then he curses it and says, May no one ever eat of it again. Disciples heard this. They continue to Jeru into Jerusalem, and they witness and experience Jesus cleansing the temple. But by the time they left, it was already dark. 
So they probably did not see the tree on the way home. The next morning on the way back, Peter remembered what was said, sees the fig tree and says, Jesus, a rabbi, the tree you cursed is now dead. So what's going on that Jesus is actually cursing a tree? Do you have a case of road rage? It's early, hungry. Have you ever been in a car with someone hungry? Can be dangerous. Hungry, sees no figs and curses it. Sort of like you're on a road trip, you drive through the fast food place, you get your bag of food, you, you drive off, open the bag, they forgot your fries, right? You're pretty angry, right? And someone asks, hey, you want to turn around and go get them? No, you're on the interstate, you know, it's five miles to the next exit. So did Jesus have a case of road rage? What was happening here? Well, we do know that Jesus encountered a tree with leaves but without fruit, and he performs a destructive miracle, a curse of warning. How do we know that it was a curse? Said so, right? Peter says, Jesus, the tree you cursed is dead. So we know that it was a curse. But it was also a miracle, and it's also the only destructive miracle that Jesus performs, or I should say the only recorded destructive miracle in the Gospels. When we think of Jesus' miracles, we're aware that he has raised the dead, he's healed the sick, he's fed the multitudes, he's calmed the storms. You always see the loving kindness of our Savior. But in this event, there is a destructive element to it. And so it reminds us that Jesus came as Savior, but he also came with solemn warnings. And if Jesus, if, if only one destructive miracle is recorded, should we pay attention to that? Should we see or think there's going to be some unique teaching for us in that? Absolutely. So think about it. There are probably other trees, elm trees, oak trees with leaves. Jesus didn't curse them. Why not? Yeah, they weren't expected to have fruit. You want to have a little, here's your agricultural lesson for today. Fig trees. Fig trees are a fruit tree where the fruit actually comes before the leaves. Now, in that time of year, mid-March to April is when the figs would first start appearing. They wouldn't be big and ripe and ready for harvest yet. That would be in August to October. But there would have been something edible on those trees. And once the fruit starts, then the leaves appear. So, when Jesus sees a fig tree with leaves, it is right to expect that there would be fruit on it. But in effect, this fig tree had false advertising, false profession. It had leaves with no fruit. It was making a false profession, in effect. So, what do you think the disciples now, the next day, they heard the curse... Next day, then, they actually see that the tree is dead. The Matthew account says the tree died instantly, which is, that's pretty miraculous that a tree could die just like that. Think about trees in your yard that get a disease or maybe struck by lightning. It's several days or weeks before you start seeing signs that it's dead. This tree died right away. So what might they have been thinking? I think it's, there's very clear in this context that there is a warning to uh, the Jews and the Pharisees of the coming destruction of the temple, okay? And the 
disciples would have known that Jesus hated hypocrisy. In fact, this week he encounters the Pharisees in this Holy Week and will call them hypocrites seven times just in the chapter 23 of Matthew. But the disciples would have been aware of some other teaching of Jesus as well. In Luke 13, he told this parable. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered, the vineyard keeper answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it, put in fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. And so there was a parable that there is time for there to be repentance and growth and fruit. But ultimately, if there is no fruit, time's up. It's the time for fruit is over. That tree is cut down. Or they might have been thinking of Jesus' very first Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 of Matthew where he said, You shall know them by their fruit. Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. And a good tree cannot produce bad fruit nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. So this tree did not produce any good fruit and it was cut down or cursed and destroyed. But the disciples may also have been thinking about their own history, the history of Israel. In Deuteronomy 28, before the Jews go into the promised land, God promises them blessing for obedience. But in that same chapter, there's a promise of curse after curse after curse for disobedience. So this passage has significant warnings for lack of fruit or lack of good fruit. And so what does that have for us as Christ followers at Christian Family Chapel in 2018? I do think there's a warning for us as a church body corporately. As a church body, we are Christian Family Chapel. We have monument signs on the street that says Christian Family Chapel. Um, This is not a a dig at any other, other churches. This is about us. But there are some churches who don't use Jesus or Christ in the name of their church. They may not even use church in their name. But we have decided that we are Christian Family Chapel, and we put it out on the street. We are, in effect, waving our leaves, okay? The leaves are out there that we are Christian Family Chapel. And I think if we want Jesus to bless us as a body, we need to be producing fruit consistent with those leaves. And if that's going to happen as a church body, what needs to be true of the individual members of Christian Family Chapel? But it has to be true. Individuals have to be growing and bearing fruit as well. We need to be growing fruit individually in our lives. But what does it mean to bear fruit? What is this fruit that Jesus is looking for? If you haven't grown up in church, if you're not a lifer, so to speak, and you hear someone saying, bear fruit... That, that's a weird term. Now, I've been standing up here. This is my third time. And some people could say I'm ripe. But it doesn't mean I'm bearing fruit. Okay? So 
in a, in a nutshell, bearing fruit just means I'm putting Jesus' personality, his character, and his behaviors on display in my life. In fact, as we've talked about uh, in our baptisms, we've looked at Galatians 2.20 and some prior hours, it's the fact that Jesus, his spirit, lives within us. And if we're bearing fruit, that means that spirit is on display. Galatians 5 describes the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Individually, Tony Anderson needs to be seeing these in his life in growing measure. And what I want us to do, because we, we can have a list. By the way, this is the fruit. It's not fruits. As, this, as we yield to the Spirit, all of these should be more evident in our lives. But what are some practical ways that that uh, manifests in the life of a Christ follower? I think the first one is we are devoted to prayer. It shows a dependence upon the Father, a devotion to prayer. And I, not just a simple, I think of God as sort of a cosmic vending machine where when I need something, I throw up a prayer. But we are devoted to prayer, praying for others, praying for the lost, praying for wisdom, discernment, and strength. Because Jesus was devoted to prayer. In his earthly ministry, he always regularly found time to pray to the Father. Even when, in some sense, the disciples thought they were killing it from a ministry standpoint. Jesus, we need to keep going. We need to be here. He would still hide away and find a time for prayer. So, is that true of your life? Would people who know you, some of you live with people, would they describe you as someone devoted to prayer? They see prayer as an integral part of your life? Second, is an obedience to God. If it's the spirit of Jesus living in us, what do we know from the gospels, particularly the gospel of John, that Jesus said, whose work did he do? The father. I only do what the father tells me to do. I only speak the words the father gave me. He was submitted to the father. He was obedient to the father's word. And so if we're bearing fruit, we're going to, in growing measure, be obedient to the, to the Bible, to the Word. If it says to do something, we're going to seek to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. If it says not to do something, we're going to stop. We're going to be growing in obedience. We're going to live under the authority of God's Word. We're not going to think it as, well, that's good advice. I'll consider that, but I'll also consider other choices. Now, we make this the authority of our lives. So just ask yourself... Is there an area where you know what the Scripture says and you do the yeah, but? I know the Bible says this, but I get up each day with a knowing decision not to do what this, uh, this says. Then this warning could be for you if that's the case. Another one is a desire for the lost to be saved. We are bearing fruit. We, our life is characterized by a desire for the lost to be saved. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And if it's his spirit in us, then we should be about the same thing. If, think about it. We've had some great short-term mission trips this summer. The Philippines trip. I've talked to some people who've gone to the Philippines. They have had the opportunity to share the gospel with thousands of people. And they share good news of decisions for Christ. When you are in that context and someone shares like that, do you go... Yeah, that's great. 
Did you see the game last night? Or do you also in, have a passion for the lost to come to know Jesus? We as elders, a couple of weeks ago, realized that if we're going to lead this body, we also need to elevate our desire in that area. So we've moved to hold each other accountable. We are setting up a text stream where we're encouraging each other. How are you sharing the gospel and your work relationships with your neighbors? And then praying for one another when they come up. We realize that if we want to bear fruit, we need to have a desire to see lost people come to Jesus. And then finally, genuine generosity. There's a genuine generosity because if we are being fruitful, we recognize that our financial resources, the talents, the gifts that we have were given to us by God to put to work for his, for his kingdom. And so when we're generous, we know that as long as we're sowing and planning for God's kingdom, he will continue to give more for the sowing. And so are we genuinely generous, cheerful givers, or are we reluctant, fearful givers? Oh, I, I can't give that much away. And I'm not just resources, but with our time, our talents. So those are, that's what it means to bear fruit. Those are just, that is a non-exclusive list. So you might come up afterwards and say, well, what about this and this? And I would agree with you. But what we need to recognize, if we are saying we're Christians, if we are waving the leaves, so to speak, then we should expect there to be fruit because fruit comes before the leaves. Fruit comes before actually the profession. Genuine fruit. So at the chapel, when you, someone comes and says, I want to be united as a member here, and they go through our new members class, Discovering Church Membership, they understand what we teach and believe. They give their personal testimony. They say, I want to identify with this church. We celebrate that. However, we would be insincere if we then did not expect to see fruit from our members. It's part of loving each other well and encouraging one another. So we try to, that's what we believe is the one another's and encouraging each other to bear fruit. We do not want to have a church of hypocrites because we know our Savior hated that. So when I first came to the chapel, I had the benefit of teaching in junior high. And Bill Winton gave me a lot of good uh, coaching from teaching. And he says, when you teach junior high, and you'll find this true, if you have something important for them to know, it's also helpful for them to know the why. Okay? They want to know why they want to do things. Um, and so I want us to, in the time remaining, I want to know why do we need to bear fruit? If the curse itself is not enough of a warning, why should we want to bear fruit? Well, the first reason is Jesus desires to see that fruit in our lives. Now, if you notice in the parable or in this story today, uh, not a parable, but Jesus was hungry for fruit. He wanted to see that fruit. Now, I was getting ready to make this Jesus hungers to see fruit in our lives, but I didn't want to imply that Jesus had a need in any way for our fruit or our good works, but he does desperately not desperately, that's wrong too. He does desire that because it is part of the gospel message. We don't want to truncate the gospel. When we look at Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. We know that by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. So just to be clear, 
The, the fruit that we're talking about doesn't save us. We don't, let's produce fruit so we can earn God's favor, earn salvation. The fruit is a result, it's a byproduct of that faith in Christ. And even the faith is a gift. So we can't even boast about that. But for we were saved for his, for we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we may walk in them. So the gospel is Christ humbled himself, came as a human, as a man, lived a perfect life, was crucified and dead, buried and resurrected so that we might have eternal life. And that eternal life involves good works that he prepared beforehand for us to do because those good works bring glory to God and result in peace, hope, and joy in our lives. So he desires to see that fruit, those good works, because that is the gospel from salvation to living the eternal life. So let me ask you this. The fact that Jesus Christ died for you, you put your name in it. It's, yes, he, he, God so loved the world, but think, Jesus died for Tony Anderson. Fill your name in there. Now, ask yourself, how often does that encourage and motivate you? How often is that truth in your mind? Do you wake up every day thinking, my Savior loved me enough to die for me, and he's created good works for me, so I, out of gratitude, I want to be his ambassador in all relationships. I want to be about his mission. I want to be about his works. He wanted the lost to be saved. I want the lost to be saved. Or does the fact that Jesus died for you, is that, well, on Sunday I think about that, when someone brings it up, but in the day-to-day, it just really doesn't move my needle, so to speak. A friend of mine, Brad Bigney, who is a, uh, a biblical counselor and pastor in Kentucky, told the story once of he was counseling a couple in his church, and it was, it was dragging along. They weren't making a lot of change. And he was sharing with the wife about, again, reminding her of the gospel and that Jesus' death and love for her and the, the indwelling spirit. And she just sort of cut him off and said, Pastor, I, that just doesn't move me. That just doesn't do it for me. And he was flabbergasted because he said, if that doesn't do it, I don't have anything else for you. I don't have anything else for you. Anything else you're trying to do is just sort of a list of things to control and manipulate people and circumstances. There's no lasting hope there. So Jesus desires to see that fruit because that's what he came and died for. So that should encourage us. Another truth is when we claim to be Christ followers and bear no fruit, it dishonors Jesus before the world. It dishonors Jesus in the, wor- in our, in the world we walk in, live in. And I'm going to unpack that. But first, I want to show you uh, a testimony to this point from someone you all know. Going to church was always a part of my life. Never questioned my belief in God or His Son, Jesus Christ. Dawson McAllister called people like me lifers. What he meant was that we were the hardest people to convince that being good was not enough. (laughs) That was me. Just being good and believing that somehow God would be okay with that. Just drifting along. I had no desire, as we would say, to be a fully devoted, spirit-empowered Christ follower. I remember 
the decision I made to ask Jesus to come into my life when I was 12 years old. Simply didn't want to go to hell. That done, I really just continued to drift along and exist. No discipleship, no growth, no discipline, certainly no fruit. Went off to college to play ball and it was really important to me to fit in. I would tell people I was a Christian, but really um, I would do and say and be whatever was necessary to fit in. I'd use the term I was a Christian chameleon. I'm so grateful that God was not satisfied with that. He put a guy in my life who really um, had the courage to confront Ron came up to me one day and he said, hey, dude, would you do me a favor? I said, man, absolutely. What do you need me to do? And he looked at me and he said, would you, would you do me a favor and just quit telling people that you're a Christian? Because those of us who are trying to live our lives to honor him, you are killing our testimony. I remember when he said that, I was, uh, I was hot. I mean, I was beyond hot. I was mad. Wanted to fight. And uh, we exchanged words and I had to walk away made it back to my apartment and really began to, to think about what Ron had said. And I realized that Ron was right. I was a chameleon. There was no evidence of a changed life. There was no fruit in my life. That was a watershed moment for me. Because I really did want to be the man God purposed and designed me to be. Sought out a pastor. And that pastor took me to some scriptures. And he said to me, John, as long as you keep trying to live and to work in your power, you're going to be always frustrated, always failing, always struggling. But when you recognize that Christ is in you and he gives you the power to live a new life, not a better life, but a new life, it'll change the way you think and the way you live your life. He was right. It was eye-opening to recognize that Christ abided in me through the power and presence of His Holy Spirit. But more than that, He wanted me to abide in Him. When that became real to me, my life radically changed. There was evidence not just of repentance, but there was evidence of fruit. And it was all for God's glory. It was awesome. It was literally the best thing that ever happened to me. Well, I want to thank John for that testimony. That takes quite a bit of humility. And I can tell you, I've known the man 25 years, and there's a lot of fruit in that life. I also am aware, though, that I lived life similar to that. I didn't have anyone who would come up and confront me that way. I wish I had. And this... Um, warning that we can live in a way that dishonors God is carried out in it's that's carried out in scripture Paul when he was writing to the Corinthians even after they after he I'm sorry after the Corinthians had been challenging Paul's apostleship and questioned whether or not he was genuine Paul then wrote to the Corinthians and he said test yourselves to see if you're in your in the faith examine yourselves or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test he was saying look see if there's fruit in your lives let me ask you a question how would you respond if someone who knew you 
uh, it wasn't just a one-off conversation, but they knew you and they came to you and said, hey, I love you, but I just don't see any fruit in your life. How would you respond? Here in this room, would you want someone to tell you that? Now, in real life, how would you respond? I can tell there have been a few occasions in the counseling room. I'm very slow to go there. When I've, but I've met with them for months, and there's a refusal to grow and change. And I just have to say, I need you to examine yourself. And the few times I've done it, it hasn't gone well. It's been, are you saying I'm not saved? No. I'm just saying you should examine. Does Paul say they're not saved? Paul, Jesus is the one who knows. But Paul was the one who said examine. So if we want to bear fruit because we don't want to dishonor, are we open to people speaking into our lives that way? A final reason, I think, is that we should want to bear fruit is there will come a time when fruit bearing is impossible. In this story, Jesus comes to the fig tree, finds no fruit on it, and he says, may no one eat fruit from you this growing season. No. May no one eat fruit from you again, ever. Never, never, never. There was a t- this fig tree would never produce fruit again. And so we have to recognize that the warning here, just like the parable in Luke, there could come a time when our ability to bear fruit is gone. And for an unbeliever, that means eternity without God. And I think for those who may have the false leaves but haven't made a true confession, there are warnings there. And it's also spoken of in Hebrews. We're going to look at a passage here, which for some is troubling. But I think when you look at all of the scripture and you understand the context, you see the warning here to an unbeliever. The writer to the Hebrews says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they have again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. I think a study of this passage in the context will make it clear that what they're saying is if someone has had the gospel explained to them, they understand, they've been enlightened. It's not, they know the truth. They've been partakers. It doesn't say indwell, but they've experienced the work of the Spirit. Maybe they've been planted in a good church so they receive the love of others. But they don't make Christ their Savior and Lord. They can't be renewed again because you can't do something again that was never done the first time. And then that time, the, re- the opportunity for repentance is gone. Now, do we get to know when, that, when it's too late? We don't. And so if you're here and you're worried, the good news is it's not too late. Today can be the day you place faith in Christ. And if you have a loved one who has fallen away, continue to pray for them. We don't get to decide when, but there is a warning that at some point fruit bearing will not be possible. And there's a warning to believers as well. People that we know are believers, uh, that it seems evident to us, again, only God and the individual, but maybe we become like the uh, Christians at the church in Ephesus spoken of in Revelation chapter two, where Jesus says, you've lost your first love and now we're living just for ourselves. When Paul wrote to new believers in Galatia in chapter 6, he's, well, let me, he said, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. 
writing to new believers, if we're claiming Christ and we're saying this is what a Christian looks like, but we're dishonoring him, Paul says, God's not going to be mocked. If you sow to yourself, you will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So, what does this have takeaways today, right? It's a pretty heavy passage, a curse on a tree that ends up could be a curse of warning to us. You know, I have the curse, and I think last time Doug was on vacation, I had divorce, so I think he plans his vacation around the, the hard passages. But for us, when God gives us this warning, it's not out of condemnation. It's actually out of love. He wants us to repent. And so for those who have not placed faith in Christ today, today's the day. There'll be men and women here who would love to talk to you about that after the service. But for those of us who are Christ followers and we realize there hasn't been fruit in our lives or maybe not as much fruit as we would like, that fruitlessness, we can repent and become fruitful. And Jesus in his goodness doesn't make a mystery out of that either. He tells us, and we've sang about this today, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. So we can bear much fruit if we abide in Jesus. Now, much like bearing fruit, that abide word in the church, I think, leaves people questioning. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? When we use the word abide in our language, is that sort of a relaxed passive word or is that a proactive word? Oh, really? Someone says abide and you think it's proactive? I think it is in, our, in Scripture but I think sometimes people think, well, if I read, have my cup of coffee on the back porch and I read the scriptures, I'm abiding. But Jesus took the mystery of abiding away just five verses later when he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. See, the fruit of the spirit, what Jesus did in the father, we do in Jesus. And Doug sums it up very well when he says, abiding is simply stepping forward doing as Jesus commanded, trusting that he will do as he promised. So if we're going to do that, we first have to know what he commands so that we can do them. And then we also have to know the promises. Because I think sometimes we believe God promises things he didn't promise. And we get disheartened. God doesn't promise to change circumstances, but he promises to give us the strength to be fruitful in them. So Matt's going to come up. And as we close, we're going to, we're going to close by singing our closing prayer. And as he's coming, I want you to just ask yourself today, what will I do practically based upon this passage? Will I go and I ask a loved one or a friend, I want you to tell me, do you see fruit in my life? Do you have any concerns, any pause to think that maybe I'm not a true believer? Welcome that input. Again, they don't decide that, but they have insight in whether or not they see fruit or maybe as a broad matter, that means you give up being explosively angry in your home and start living for others, considering the interests of others is more important. Or maybe you don't worry about convenience, you don't worry about reputation. You say, I'm going to have spiritual conversations with friends, with neighbors, with loved ones, with servers, because I want the lost to be saved. Why don't we stand as we close?
So don't be that tree. Let's go out this week. Let's bear fruit. And then let's come back next week because this particular road trip, it ain't over. God bless. <laughs>